Welcome back to another episode. Today, we will hear about how Rose and Bill continued their lives in California and what it meant to be majoring in psychology. Hello, Bill. Good to have you again. Good to be back, Mono. <laughs> how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm very fine. Thank you. Um, not to waste any time, we left off when you... Um, took a plane from India after a crazy trip back to Germany, right? This is correct. Cool. So let's go on. All right. So we get back to Germany and again, both Rose and I are, are feeling a bit weak from our, our stomach difficulties that we had, <laughs> uh, but it's good to be back and it's good to be able to uh, drink water Uh, again, we uh, were planning then at that point, after we got our strength back, uh, to head back to California. Uh, I wanted to see my parents in Southern California, and we did. Uh, we took a plane. We spent a couple of weeks with my, my folks. Uh, they were thrilled to see both of us. Um, but we knew that uh, we didn't have an apartment there. We weren't going to live with my folks. We're trying to figure out what we we're going to do, and we get a call from uh, one of the one of the guys that was uh, in the family uh, where Rose was living in Germany, her host family, uh, mm -hmm. Bobby Dale. And in fact, Bobby Dale was the one that started the whole exchange uh, program. He he lived before Rose came out. Uh, he lived with uh, your grandparents and that family for a year, fluent in German, really, really smart guy. And Rose got to know him quite well. And he was the one that set up the exchange with his family for Rose. So that's just a little, little back history. But at any rate, Bobby gave us a call. He was at Stanford University. And Stanford is in Palo Alto, California. It's what was not known then, but is known now as Silicon Valley. And yeah. we're looking at 1974 now. And just for a historical perspective, Steve, Steve Jobs uh, was getting ready to debut his Apple One computer uh, a year and a half later. So he was already in the throes of, of building these computers just down the road. Uh, and, and now we all know about Silicon Valley, but Bobby told us that uh, that he had a job for us. And this was great. We came back from India with some money left over. We didn't spend it all, but we definitely needed to make some money. And the proposition was that on the campuses, they had what they called these eating clubs. Students could s sign up for a particular club And then they would be responsible for all of the breakfast, lunches, and dinners. They'd come in. There were small, mini cafeterias, uh, which, you know, cost money and everything. But he wanted us to do some lawn work and basic landscaping stuff around this eating club. The accommodations that were provided were under the board. In other words, we, we were not allowed to be sleeping on campus. But what he set up for us in, the, in a tool shed with no windows and a steep ladder, you crawl up on, <laughs> in this ladder into this loft bed. And when you were lying down, literally, you had uh, two or three inches between your, your nose and the ceiling. So... Uh. We worked our eight-hour shifts, and it was a godsend because he was paying us cash, and we were getting each five bucks an hour. Well, that was so much more money. When I was working for my brother to save up to go to India, for example, I was getting paid two dollars an hour. So between the the two of us, we were we were making eighty dollars a day. Um, It was hard work. Uh, we, we had to sneak into showers. We would have to 
he would bring food back from the eating club and we couldn't eat in there. We'd have to eat it in our tool shed and stuff. This was at Stanford University, one of the most elite universities in the country, uh, on the, well, in the entire country. Um, you know, people are familiar with the Ivy League schools, Yale and Harvard and Dartmouth and Cornell. Uh, Stanford uh, on the West Coast, it's, it was in that tier. And when we were working away in the day, um, I did see a couple of students that I went to high school uh, from, hmm. some of the really top students. And they looked at both Rose and I with such distaste and shock that we were dirty, working away, trying to create this watering system. They, they barely wanted to acknowledge us. It was so uh, just creepy. It's just kind of a creepy mm -hmm. thing. There was a time limit on this particular job. Uh, it wasn't going to last for forever. And I'm trying to think back. I think we were there for six weeks or something. But it was really enough uh, to plan our next move. We had been talking about moving down the coast about 40 miles to Monterey. And I was now going to give school another shot. Hmm. And I think... It, Quick question. Mm -hmm. Why weren't you allowed on, on campus? Because you were not studying there? or Because this he had worked out some sort of deal that was, I think, under the table. Uh, it was cash. We weren't getting paid in check. We I weren't see, paying yeah. taxes on it. I don't know what the, the, the whole story around it, but it was clear that uh, we, we were not to engage. We had to be fly low yeah. on that. Yeah. So... I still have my backpack. Rose didn't have hers. She had one large suitcase, and we take the bus, the hour and 20-minute bus ride to Monterey. We stay in a hotel for a couple of days, and then we're looking for an apartment. These were all of our possessions. What was in this one suitcase and a backpack, and it's hard to imagine. There's something very romantic about it. It's very simple. Uh, but at the same, same time, I, I look around and realize all the stuff that I've accumulated over these years. And um, it's really nice to be mobile when you think about it. Mm -hmm. We found an apartment and we enrolled at this Monterey Peninsula College, a junior college. And again, the goal was to get enough credits, and it looked like I was going to have to be there for three semesters or a year and a half, and to do well enough so we could transfer. Rose, was on, Rose could have gotten into a college or university just on the basis of her, 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 her work getting her abitur, but... Mm -hmm. um, we were a team and she wanted to, she, we wanted to be uh, on the same page with this. And it was totally fine for her to do this. So with all of the good intentions, we get enrolled. And there are things in life. I've, I've reflect on my own life. Uh, and I look at my extremely poor academic performance in high school, and I should say, my my uh, grades went way were were terrible from basically the sixth grade on. So there was a good three years before that. It was timed with a move that we made from a place where I was born and and, and loved, Redlands, California, to to. Uh, Newport or Colonel Mar, a lot of stuff one can go into as to why that happened. But why I bring it up is that I, I never felt stupid, uh, even though I was not performing well in school. I was much more into being a class clown or 
being popular and all of that kind of stuff. And I always told myself it really didn't matter because if I applied myself and, and decided to work, I could do well. But there were so many experiences in, in, in classes where the, the teacher would show my F paper to the class or make some mean comment that I would laugh it off. But internally, you take these things in. I mean, I mean have you had one of the things in life where you, you didn't give it your good effort and then you got to come back later and, 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 and face the music on some level when you decided? Yeah, I mean, I feel kind of related to what you say about school because I was, same as you, never a good student. I barely made my Abitur and just moved from, from class to class, from year to year, um, with very, very um, little space between making it and not making it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I, I can relate at some point... Um, you get kind of i mean, i know what you say about being a class clown and taking it like um on a what's the opposite of a heavy shoulder you know what i mean like yeah. taking it loosely mm -hmm. in things um because this somehow makes it easier for yourself and you um yeah you ca you can laugh at things um but it gets if it, it gets stuck to you like you said mm -hmm. um and at some point um if you decide to try and still cannot um, be as good, you know what I mean? Yes. This is like then uh, the hardest part right. because when you dis when you dis really decide to, to okay, I'm going to take a shot at this, I'm going to learn, I'm going to do whatever I want, um, and then you still fail, this is um, not a good feeling. But at some point I figured out for me... Um, What a, what a why I was bad because this was always always like things I I'm not interested in mm -hmm. and as soon as I got I found something which I was interested in, which was music for example um, all of a sudden it it came very easy for me to be good at something um, which then showed me I, this is how I think now but there's a lot of things I'm very very good at and way better than other people but and there's a lot of things I'm very not good at and there's a lot of other people which are way better in this than than I am and they have more fun doing it so let them do it I do what I'm uh, what I what I'm what I am good in the other people do what what they are good in and at some point you can form a synergy um, but it's as a kid this was um, because you are forced to be on your own you to forced to to learn everything the others learn and you're forced to not choose what you like uh, makes it kind of hard yeah yeah one of the things that i became immediately aware of when i decided to apply myself is that those years of not giving it my best i had no skills around studying how do you there's a method there's a method mm -hmm. to reading there's a method to listening to lectures there's a method to, to note taking uh, what is important what isn't it was very hard for me to discern it all seemed important for me and the end result of that is that i spent so much time uh, there were many students that would spend probably half the time It got better slowly, but what was a theme then and what was a theme throughout my academic career that goes back, goes further than my time at this junior college is that I was very afraid of, of, of failing. And even though I was doing well, as you said, there, it seemed like a very short margin between failing and succeeding and for me mm -hmm. there was a in my own thinking there was a very short margin between failing and doing extremely well i couldn't figure it out but so we paid our dues and i got great grades rose of course did it was wonderful rose was taking art classes uh pottery classes i'd completed my general ed requirements I'd taken three psychology courses because I wanted to get into uh, studying that and, and that was going to be my major if I transferred. 
there was only one psychology professor there and uh, I got to know him quite well. He would do these weekend workshops that were absolutely crazy. You'd get 18, 20 people. They'd rent a big house on the beach and we'd spend a weekend there. They would barely feed us. They would give us water and fruit and whatnot. And then he would do therapy, group therapy and individual therapy while we were watching what he was doing with these people and all kinds of touchy-feely stuff. Rolfing, nude body massages. So we'd all be, <laughs> all be in this room getting massages from the person that we were hooked up with. It, it was a crazy experience. And I remember after one of these, just it was as powerful as any mind drug that I, that I had. I was on a completely different planet. Uh, just as, as an aside, many years later, I asked him for a letter of recommendation when I was applying to a graduate program, which he did. Uh, I won't give it much away about what happened in this graduate program, but a few years past that point, this professor, who I got to know fairly well, we did things, Rose and I did things socially with he and whoever he was dating. He had a, he had a fixation with guns, which I felt was very uncomfortable. And we'd, there were a couple of times where he would show me his gun late at night, you want to hold it, and I wasn't just, I wasn't into this at all. This guy ended up murdering his girlfriend or wife and abandoning his one and a half year old child in an airport in, in San Francisco. He hopped on a plane and lived in France for a number of years while the authorities were trying to extradite him to get him out into the United States, which they did. They promised, the United States promised that they wouldn't try, uh, try him for uh, 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 giving the death penalty or something. They, there was some way that they were able to get him and he's been serving the rest of his life in prison. So this is a guy that wrote me a letter of recommendation, one of my two recommendations that has a quite a, a checkered history. Um, and he's still in prison. Uh, um, he still is? Oh, yeah. He's been in prison. I think that he probably got to prison in about 1990 or 80, 88 or something. He's yeah. been there ever since. Uh, that's just an aside. But so... What was the other one? Uh, what was the other? The the other letter of recommendation. Oh, the the other letter was just from another another professor at, at, at a different okay. school, uh, which nothing is not, special. nothing special. So we were are, we are accepted to UC Santa Cruz, which is about thirty miles up the coast. This was our dream. I was so pleased. UC Santa Cruz is part of the University of California system. There's about six schools. They're great. And the school itself is one of the most beautiful campuses known to man and womankind. The campus is on the top of this hill, very, very large campus, not in terms of students, but just in terms of area. Um, eight separate colleges within the university, depending on what your major was or your interest, that kind of thing. Uh, each college had its own cafe and dormitories, etc. cetera. Um, Redwood forests throughout so that you would actually hike mm. through these small little cat paths from one college to the next. And um, it was just, it was just absolutely gorgeous. Loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, so now this is the real deal. Some of the classes are with 200 students. You're, it's a fast pace. The, the competition seems pretty stiff, and uh, I'm frightened. I, I, going back to my 
amazing insecurities that I'm really, eh, uh, I hope I can cut it. Hope I can cut it. Um, so I knew I was going to take psychology classes and I'd gotten most of my general education requirements out. So I had a really clean path to just take as many psych classes as possible. The, the, the big hurdle for me uh, was statistics. And why I was afraid of that was that I had virtually no ba math background. And in fact, I didn't take any math classes at the junior college. I don't know how I skated around that. The last, the last math class I had was uh, algebra and then geometry, which I failed both of them. And, <laughs> and uh, I, I remember my geometry teacher, Mrs. Ward, a very kind of tough woman. She'd get so mang angry at me, and I'd be sitting in the back of the class. She would say, Stengem, Bill, Stengem, if I wasn't so lazy, I'd come back there and twist your huge big ears off. It's just, you know, th I don't think that would fly now. Can you imagine if a teacher said that uh, to? I don't the, think so. No. The parents would be up there. Um, but I deserved it. Okay, I deserved it. But you needed some math background to 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 at least understand some of the the formulas that were going on in, yeah. in statistics. Uh, they did so. They offered this class. And I should say that UC Santa Cruz had a very hippie reputation. Uh, and there, were, I mean, this is maybe a little past the, the, the hippie era. We're, we're looking at 1974, but it had kind of a loose uh, atmosphere. They did not give you grades. They give you narrative evaluations, which were each teacher had to write how you did in coursework. And uh, it was actually very challenging because you could do really well uh, in the coursework, but if you didn't participate, they may mention that. So in, in some ways, people that did not go to Santa Cruz and thought, oh, you're not getting a grade, it's much easier. In fact, uh, I always felt it was much more difficult because you had to cover mm -hmm. all bases. But they were offering this class that was called Math Without Anxiety. And I said to myself, this is perfect. Math without anxiety. What is this all about? So I signed up for this class. And it's in a, a lecture hall. But they end up moving this into this large room. There was probably only about 30 students. Because I think most other students psychology students were not in the position that myself and my, my cohorts uh, <laughs> were. And they had uh, these mats down, which I thought was really interesting. And they had us lie down. And the, the uh, teacher's assistant, the TA, explained that before we're going to even talk about math, that they first wanted to spend a few sessions with us, getting us relaxed. And they were going to teach us breathing exercises, dim the lights, medit basic meditative techniques, which they did. Uh, they also, uh, further on in these sessions, would pair the breathing exercises with showing us a number or a, a, a basic equation. And what they were doing, uh, which I've learned later, it was a form of desensitization training, uh, which basically is, is that they, they do this with people with phobias, is that you can't be anxious and relaxed at the same time. So if you're afraid of a spider beforehand, they teach you these exercises and they'll have you look at a, a serene beach setting or something so they get you really relaxed and then before that they rate on a scale of one to ten your anxiety around spiders it could be when you hear the word spider 
when you see the word spider, if you see a picture of a spider, all the way down to if you were to hold a spider, which would be ten. Yeah. So they they pair these two things together and they take it to these stages. So that with in the case of phobias, which are relatively easy to treat, um, you 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 can deal with it. So they were do, they were trying to get us relaxed and stuff. So three or four sessions into it, they said, "Okay, now you're going to you're going to take an, a, a a test." Or an inventory. I don't even think they use the word exam or test. It's like inventory, much more neutral. Just to see, we want to make sure that everybody succeeds and we want to see which module we're going to place you in. The way this was set up, and it was, it was, it was beautiful, this was self-paced uh, self learning. So you would go through these modules step by step by step and they said that if you make it all the way through these modules, in the course of 10 weeks, you'll get through the equivalent of high school uh, ge uh, algebra and, and trig, trigonometer. In 10 weeks? In 10 weeks, if you put, if you put the time in it. So we take the inventory, and I felt really relaxed uh, perhaps maybe too relaxed too relaxed yeah. they always say that with actors or performing per performers there's a certain point that you do, of course don't want to be too anxious and some famous performers have performance anxiety but i've also heard from from those kinds of people that you really don't want to go into a performance totally relaxed that a little mm -hmm. bit of anxiety is good I felt no anxiety. So the next session we come back and they tell the class, open up your first manual and it will tell you which module you'll, you're, you will be in. So I open up the first page and it says module one. Well, Okay, I said, all right, uh, no big deal. So I open up the next page, and the first e example is the number three. And it says, this is a number. <laughs> so... Um, clearly, <laughs> clearly I had some work to do, right? So basically, you have learned nothing in your entire school career about math. Well, you know, I mean, I did, I did know how to a add. A number worked. I did know how to add and subtract. I could even do long division and multiplica multiplication. I could balance a checkbook. Uh, not that I ever cared to, but uh, those kinds of things. Um, yeah. But... To, to cut to the chase, it was actually amazing because I so loved this module uh, training business, and they were right. I was in ten weeks. I was able to just zip, 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 zip uh, through this stuff, and I felt really, really, really prepared for the next phase. Okay, so, um, so both Rose and I are absolutely loving. Uh, our time at UC Santa Cruz. Rose was also a psych major through the, the beginning phases at UC Santa Cruz. She then switched to art, and, which was a, a good move for her. We're getting close, both Rose and I, to finishing our time at UC Santa Cruz. And before I was ready to graduate, I, I felt it was important for me to get some real experience in, in the field. See if yeah. I can apply some of what I felt that I'd learned in the classroom to a, a real world setting. <clears throat> and <clears throat> we did not have many options uh, in my area for that. And the one option that presented itself was a locked, lo locked long-term psychiatric facility. This was uh, 
an agency that housed patients that had had a long experience in that kind of network. There were some patients that would leave, but most were there for the long haul. They were not going to get out necessarily. And I went through my orientation uh, and I realized that I was more interested in working the night shift there. Uh, I just felt it would give me, in a way, more opportunity to engage uh, longer with the, with the patients there, even though they were going to be sleeping a lot of the time. During the day, yeah. they were taking him through all, all these different activities and um, whatnot. I, I don't know why I decided that. But the first or second day upon my arrival, I witnessed a patient get punched in the eye by another patient. And it was just was like out of a horror movie. It was, there was blood everywhere and they got him to the hospital and the patient was gone for a number of, uh, I think a, d- a day or two. And he came back with a patch in his eye. And it was like, well, how's he doing? Well, he lost his eye. Well, just completely lost his eye. Yeah. So now he had one eye the rest of his, rest of his life. And this happened on your second day. Yeah. All night. Yeah. Second day. Um, Nothing like that ever happened, uh, again, fortunately. But the actual layout of the place was very, it was rather eerie and spooky. Long, long hallways. Uh, they'd house, uh, I think, two or three patients in a room. It was a one-story building with shaped like a T. And normally there were between 80 and 90 patients. And one of the first things that you did after you'd received a briefing from the, from the staff that was leaving at, at, at 11 o'clock, my hours were, I think, 11.30 to 7.30, 11.30 p.m. to 7.30 in the morning. But every night? Every, well, I worked four or five shifts a week, depending. I'm still taking some classes, uh, and my idea was, oh, it'd be great. I can work a evening shift, catch a few hours, go to the beach, get some studying done. And none of that panned out because <laughs> I was so tired, so tired. Uh, get, and getting, we all know what it's like, uh, getting two or three nights sleep. Uh, after a while, you're, um, well, after a while, I would probably have to have been hospitalized in, the, in that particular uh, agency <laughs> as well. But after you'd gotten the briefing from the previous uh, shift, the first thing that the charge nurse would ask you to do, there was usually uh, two nurses and four orderlies. I was a considered a psych tech orderly. You'd pair up and you would have to give a count. You'd have to go into the bedrooms and... The lights were at this point dim in the hallways, and they should be out in the in the bedrooms because it was lights out at eleven o'clock uh, for yeah. them or ten thirty or something. And it was a little spooky um, because you're going into these dark rooms with your flashlights and giving a count. And you'd come back to the charge nurse, and you would say eighty four, and she would say no. <laughs> she wouldn't give you the number because if she gave you the number, yeah, yeah, it, so you had, it was, all, right yeah, it was always, you were always looking to, uh, you know, see if somebody had escaped or something. And it was not a maximum security place. It was locked. There were fences, but some of the younger, more agile guys could get out and occasionally the police would pick them up and, yeah. and they'd, they'd, they'd bring them back. So- so this this happened. I mean, like this comes basically is not coming from nowhere. If if people start counting, this means at some point someone would have been missing. That's correct. And then you have to yeah. find them. And nine times out of ten, you had a a bad count. Uh, yeah. It was very it was very very rare that somebody was missing, and then you'd figure out who it is, and then 
you know, they'd send people out looking for them. And oftentimes they were not, not very, very far from the grounds. But, you know, at that time in, in, in the field of psychology, uh, it's appeared to me that most of the patients were way, way over-medicated. Some of the signs of that were either really lethargic, lots of facial tics and weird behaviors, uh, their tongue kind of coming out of the mouth and kind of chewing their face like um, and these were side effects. Uh, tardive uh, dyskinesia is one of the side effects of some of the uh, psychotropic medications. Um, I don't think yeah. they're uh, doing that to that extent, certainly anymore. But these were the early days. And uh, there were patients there. There's two or th- three patients that had received uh, lobotomies, very, very crude uh, surgical t- technique that um, forever changes you. And those kinds uh, of things. Is the lobotomy when they take out a part of your brain? They, they go in and they actually sever uh, something in the cerebral cortex. I, 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 a doctor would... Yeah, yeah. It, 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 uh, a brain surgery. Yeah, it quiets down the communication between the, the different, different lobes. And of course, a lot of people had experienced... Uh, convulsive, that electric shock therapy, etc. And you, we, I spent a lot of time reading the charts of the patients, and some of the, the histories were just absolutely heart-wrenching, breaking, heartbreaking. Um, there were a couple of, there was one woman uh, that had actually murdered her husband and had cut him into small little pieces uh, I don't know how she ended up in this facility. She was quite elder, elderly, and she is not one of those that could have scaled scaled the fence. Yeah. But despite the condition that many of these patients were in, um, it it demonstrated to me the outer reaches of of human behavior and human expression. There was this one woman that was bipolar. I think back then we were referring to it as manic depressive uh, disorder. And she would go from a very lethargic, completely uncommunicative mood to a fairly normal mood. She was being treated with with lithium. Uh, And then you'd see her behavior, uh, her energy level ramp up. And it was quite amazing. If I, if I had uh, a day or two off and she was moving towards a more energetic state, the two days later, when I come back, I would uh, always know that she was going to be just off the walls. And, and even yeah. though she was being treated, she uh, it was incredible to watch her. And she would do these raps. And this was before a rap was, for me, on the radar. And this is 1975 or 6. Uh, I would have to go back and figure out. Um, yeah. Well, even predating rap, there were certain forms of musical expression in, in jazz and blues where people would 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 would, would talk and rhythmically talk so maybe that yeah. can be I don't know where she got this from but when she was really out there she would go on for days and she would rap but you'd be talking with somebody and she'd be going on and on. And then all of a sudden you would listen to her and what she was rapping about was not just something that words that she'd come up with. There were words that she came up with, but they were about what was going on in her world. And it was what was going on uh, with people around her. 
So I began listening to her. And one day she was rapping and she was rapping about, about me. And I, I listened to her and she goes, look at Mr. Psych Tech walking down the hall. Better be careful. You're in for a fall. You think you're all that strutting down the quarter? I got you pegged. You're nothing but a hoarder. You think I'm a case? Don't get in my face. Boy, you ain't nothing but a human disgrace. <laughs> going, Holy crap. <laughs> you know, wow, I've got to I listen mean, she, to her. She would have killed at rap battles yeah. <laughs> if they existed. Well, hopefully she could rap better than I could, and she could, right? So this was just... This was, it in some way, made my day. Um, one of the things that um, you would do in the night is that you would also have to check uh, check in on people. And uh, you, one time when we were doing our count, uh, we we were coming trying to come up with the numbers and. I couldn't see this woman that the same woman that had cut her husband into little pieces. She wasn't in her yeah. bed and I'm looking around. I'm kind of going, what the heck's going on here? Uh, and I peer behind the, the door and she's positioned her. she was a very small petite woman. She, she's behind this door and she, shovels out and with her hands in a motion she makes this cutting motion with her fingers and kind of licking her lips and uh i guess that was you know, her way of saying don't get in my face i might cut you up or something i don't know yeah. um and that so that was spooky but one one of the things that um i did with this one woman who uh she was what we would say very uh, catatonic. She did not speak. She had a very stiff gait. She could walk, but you'd have to assist her. Most of the time she mm -hmm. was in a wheelchair, but we'd like to get her up and up and around. And I, I would, I would check in on her and uh, you wanted to make sure that she wasn't lying in one position for too long. Um, some of the patients would get bed sores and that's a really bad thing from mm. being uh, on one side of your body too long and developing sores that can get infected and stuff. She also uh, was a bedwetter and um, it was almost like clockwork at about two o'clock, 2 a.m. Every morning I'd go in and, and check her and uh Sixty, seventy percent of the time, she'd be she'd be wet. She was very small, uh, so I could get her out of her bed and into a chair and um, change her sheets and get her into uh, a clean clean gown. I can't, kind of looking back on on this, it's kind of I'm, I'm kind of amazed that they didn't have a a, a nurse do that, a female nurse. Um, I'm just, I, I hadn't thought of it back then, but I'm thinking of it now just in terms of her own um, privacy. But I could, I could, I could do that whole procedure really within a, within a four or five minutes or something. Yeah. And one of these days I, I go down to um, see whether or not her, her bed is wet and she'd never spoken. And she turns to me and she goes, it's dry. And it was, it's just a, it was a remarkable experience for me. Having worked there for all of those months and had the, this moment with her to communicate and actually say something. Uh, mm -hmm. It brought me, it, it really it brought me to tears. Um, this was not like out of the De Niro movie Awakenings, where now she was 
rapping or talking incessantly. Uh, she said a few words to me beyond that point, but she was not, um, this wasn't a cure, but I, 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 uh, I thought about that experience a lot and it, it was instructive in, in some ways uh, that I couldn't even comprehend at that particular, at that particular time. At a certain point, I, I began to develop these terrible headaches and um, I'd never really had headaches before. I decided to go see a doctor, which is not something that I normally do as much as I should. And he, he asked me what I, what I was doing for, for work and uh, told him I was working graveyard shift, psychiatric facility, and he said, wow, that sounds really stressful. I said, no, 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 it's not stressful. He said, well, it mm -hmm. sounds hard to me. I don't know if I could do it. I said, you might you know, think about that. Um, my, my feeling is that there's nothing physically wrong with you, but that you're, you're feeling a lot of stress. So I got home, and I'm sitting around with Rose, and we're listening to music, and she goes, hey, what did the doctor have to say? I said, oh, God. I said, he thinks I'm, I'm under stress. And it's not really stress. Stupid. stupid yeah, yeah, exactly. Just give me, give me a, a, you know, a pill that I can take. And, yeah. and, and, and Rose turned to me and she said, well, I don't know. It, it could be stress, but I'm just thinking of all of the sadness and pain that you've witnessed with these patients here. And that would be really hard going in every, every night and to be part of their world. Mm. And she, at that point, it's as if somebody's letting the air out of a tire. It, it felt like this hissing it, feeling and sound. And I could just feel the pressure going. And I started to cry and I started to cry and I am sobbing. Within a few seconds, I am bowled over in tears to the point where I can barely catch my breath. And she stood by me. And it was an unforgettable experience. And I realized right then and there, she's right. Um, had enough. I needed, to, I needed to find an experience where there was more hope uh, mm -hmm. that people were going to get better. Um, I thought I was a tough guy. I thought I was... Uh, a risk taker and in some of these earlier stories yes that is true but I didn't really know the kind of risk that I actually was taking uh, it it was damaging in many ways because when I Later on, con contemplated getting back into the field of psychology, I was a bit damaged. Mm. A bit damaged in terms of my belief, my sense of how useful the field was. Very uh, immature uh, decision-making because it was based on one experience and I came from this very idealistic student in an ivory tower to a really bad a bad place it was not it wasn't it was not even close to good um but i didn't know that stuff and it took me a long time and actually many years to make peace with that and um well we'll find out in a later episode 
how that happened. Yeah, crazy. I mean, I can see why um, the doctor probably was right as well as Rose, mm -hmm. uh, as you said. Um, and I, I don't think this has something to do with being uh, a tough guy, like you said. Um, you can be as tough as you want, but but having, I mean, interest in in uh, in, the, in the the field of psychology, and then even after, if you realize this this um, a few years later, seeing so many people um, at their dead end, basically, mm -hmm. um, I can only imagine. Um, but it makes total sense to me. So I can see the. I mean, by just by the stories you told, they are all amazing in its in its own way, but they're all like sad and, and very much pain swings with it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like for example, the the as beautiful as it is that 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 the woman is, was talking to you. By the way, did did you know the reason why she did this, or or that was this just an? I for the life of me, I don't know why. I, you know, I, I, th I think at the time she was expressing her appreciation yeah. for, for my looking, yeah, looking, looking at, after her. And I, I never uh, felt that I would get any kind of acknowledgement for her. I was doing it for myself as much as I was doing it for for her it made me feel good to know yeah. that this person would not be sleeping or no in a wet bed yeah yeah but in the same hand she even if she was not talking she was still living and we all know how it how it feels to sleep in, yeah. in the wet or, or yeah. just lay in something wet if, if, if even if it's not like urine mm -hmm. um, but maybe she this was her way of um, being grateful and maybe like the 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 fact that she didn't wet her, wet herself this night was like maybe she she I don't know this is just a assumption but maybe she did the extra mile and said today I'm gonna stay clean I'm gonna stay dry for him mm -hmm. because he makes he helps me every day so I don't maybe, know maybe who knows it's a big mystery but it was yeah. a very it was a it was a uh, an unforgettable moment for me I believe that yeah, yeah. okay cool um thank you very much we'll be hear more about um about the about about the psychiatric maybe it's quite possible It's quite possible. Okay. So we built another cliffhanger. Um, we don't know if it's going to be next episode or the episode after the next episode, but at some point, maybe we will hear some other stories. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, thank you very much for this uh, very deep story today and already looking forward to the next episode. All right, Manu. Goodbye. Bye-bye now. <laughs>